This is Strange Assembly, episode 231, Charterstone. I'm Chris Stevenson, and here with me, as always, is Jay Earl. Jay? Anybody? Apparently, I thought that was a funnier joke than my wife did. <laughs> I was actually just sitting here, because I've never recorded before, and I'm like, is he actually talking or am I listening the last audio segment that you got so well there you go that is the kind of of dedicated long term prep work for new members uh, new people on the recordings that you can expect here at Strange Assembly your tabletop gaming podcast find us on the web at strangeassembly.com so I am Chris Stevenson the other voice you heard is Katie Stevenson woohoo Hello. <laughs> so uh, we are here today to talk about Charterstone, the brand new game from Stonemeyer Games, designed as one might expect by Jamie Stegmeyer. Charterstone is a legacy game. So many of you are familiar with what a legacy game is. If you're not, right, this is a game where there is not just a campaign mode where you play the game repeatedly over uh, a series of sessions, but it is a game where you are going to physically alter components, and there's some sort of, usually some sort of ongoing story accompanying that, so that by the time you are done, you have uh, a unique version of the game just for yourself. Charterstone is a legacy game that is a legacy village-building game that is played over 12 games. It's exactly 12. Not like Pandemic Legacy where it might be 12 or it might be more. It's it's always going to be the same number of games for the Legacy campaign. Katie and I played it over the holiday break. We've played a full campaign, and we're here to tell you what we thought about it. Just so you know, our campaign was a four-player campaign, Charterstone plays from two players to six players, and uh, later on we'll, we might, we'll give you some thoughts about, about player counts, but we did our campaign with four players. Now, because we wanted to try some of these things out as we were going, going through the campaign, we did, I guess, d- disclosure, promotional consideration was provided in the form of a review copy. So we wanted to make sure that when we came to do the review that we had tried uh, as many things. So we played some games where one of the four human players was substituted with one of the Automa players, and we also had some games where we had five or six total players because there were the four human players as well as, as one or two Automa to see how that worked out. So we'll give you our thoughts about Automa later. The basics of Charterstone, and we're going to talk about the basics of Charterstone as it exists at the beginning of the game. This is going to be a spoiler-free podcast, so we are not going to give you any particular information 
that you would not already know if you opened up the game and looked at the rule book as it exists at the beginning of game one and then played through the first game and then did your end of game material for the first game. So anything that comes up after the first game, we may talk about our thoughts about it obliquely, but not going to give you any spoilers on that. I hope. Well, that's the plan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I have a delete button when I do editing, so it really shouldn't come up. But so, And the theme of Charterstone is that each player is a charter that has been sent out with the other charters, uh, the other players, to the, gr- the village of Green Gully, which has been founded, and you and the other players are going to try to do the best that you can to do the most to improve and expand the village of Green Gully, as exemplified through Victory Points. It is a worker placement game, so everything that you do during the game, you're going to do by putting a worker on a particular spot on the board. There are There's always a certain core of five basic locations in the middle, and then the, the cloud port uh, up in the corner. Each of the charters is going to start out with a basic resource building, and that's it at the start of the campaign. The worker placement is reminiscent of Euphoria. If you play that in that you are allowed to assign to another spot if another player's worker is there, but you then, or if your own worker is there even, and then you bump that worker if you do it. So there is a, a little bit of a cost to assigning where another player's worker is because it lets them reuse that worker before having to spend a turn picking up because on your turn you either place down a worker or you pick up all of your work. Basics of this are, or very basic right at the beginning. There are six different resources plus money. And at the beginning of the games, the actions that you have available to you are go to a building and get a basic resource, go to a building and trade a basic resource for money, go to the cloud port and sell your resources or money for victory points. But then where you get more interesting and more specific to Charterstone is that each of those buildings, other than the five in the middle and the cloud port, is a sticker. And so you, before the first game, you have put that basic resource building down on the board, and you accomplish that by peeling a sticker off of a card and putting it on the board, which leaves you with a what is called a completed building card, which is the remaining part of, of the card after you take the building sticker off of it. And that has a crate in the corner of it. And you can go to the Charterstone building and unlock that crate. King has provided these crates. You know, you built that that iron mine, you built that quarry, and now the king has rewarded you by letting you come and unlock that crate. When you unlock, you go into the index. And the index is a box of a box of several hundred cards that you don't get to look at until the game says that you are allowed to look at them. So when you unlock a crate, you go on a piece of paper that says, I'm unlocking crates 
27, and that means I go get cards 32, 33, 76, and you pull those out of the crate. And some of them are cards that are given to the player who did the unlock. Some of them might be new rules. Some of them might be new other whatnot. And you, you know, you're not going to know what that is until you do the unlock. But the thing you get for unlocking a building, uh, unlocking one of these crates, and you will do this in the first game. The game is very explicit that you should do this during the first game. So this is going to be something you're going to see during the first game. Not a spoiler. You will unlock the crate, and you will get another building to build, and you will get a persona. And a persona is a little card that gives you a particular unique power in a given game. So you now have another new building, which you can eventually gather up the resources to build, and then you build that building, and hey, now you have another constructed building, which you have, you know, put another sticker out on your board, and that building gives you another crate that you can do another unlock, and, you know, and so on and so forth, and, and of course, things get, get changed up. So your primary victory point sources in this that's going to drive the sort of cycle of what you're doing with all these resources that you're gathering is, right, you build buildings, and then you unlock the crate that comes with the buildings. You get victory points whenever you do that. Each game is going to have three different objectives that are out. Objectives are going to be things that push you to play your game in a certain way. There, are, An objective might be have six money sitting there available, have all six different resources, have three different of your influence markers out on the reputation track or up at the cloud port on the quota track. So every time you complete an objective, you get a chunk of victory points. I mentioned you could go to the cloud port, you sell things, you get victory points there. And there are things you can do to put tokens on an influence track, which at the end of the game can give you victory points depending on your rank of, you know, whoever, it's a, it's a majority sort of thing. So whoever has the most gets the most victory points and then so on from there. And you kind of have an indicator that these are the primary drivers of the game, these five things, because the remaining resource that you have that I haven't mentioned is influence tokens. Every time you do one of these things, you have to spend one or more of your influence tokens. You have to spend influence tokens to unlock a crate. You have to spend influence tokens to build a building. You spend influence tokens to put them on the reputation ta- track. When you sell at the cloud port, you have to put influence tokens on the quota track, and that that represents you sending resources back to the king, and that's where you're getting victory points. So it's a pretty straightforward game as it starts out in game one. I would not say that it's a light game at that stage, but it's certainly not a heavy game. You operate in the realm of Euro games. So that's the sort of basic rules framework that you're going through from there. And, of course, then you go through the legacy thing and, you know, things may or may not change. What what do you think? Do you think it's a spoiler to say that things will change, Katie? No. I mean, I think... (laughs) <laughs> people want it to change. Why would you want to play the same exact thing 12 times? I know. Did you know that some people I've heard actually just buy a game 
that doesn't change ever <laughs> and just play it over and over again. Because I, I, I thought that I, right, the way we, you buy a game, you play it once, you rate it on BGG, and then you put it on your shelf and you go buy another new game, right? Well, that's, that's how, how it's done in this house, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what are you talking about? We, I play every single game I get it at least 20 times to, to give it the love that it deserves. I don't have stacks of games waiting to be played. Shush, shush. All right, so uh, everyone is used to hearing me talk a lot, and they've already gotten to do that in this episode. So what did you think about Charterstone, Katie? Well, first, Charterstone was my first legacy game. So I guess I I don't know... Are, are stickers common in legacy games? They're pretty much universal. Okay. Well, so, you know, with Chris, I, I know that he doesn't like, you know, cards to be bent or anything and sleeves a lot of things. Trust me, I know because I help him sleeve a lot of things. And so I was kind of surprised that he wanted to do a game that you you know, to have stickers and bend the cards to get the sticker off and write on the cards. So I felt like I was breaking a rule with that aspect. But as you mentioned, I guess it's a common thing. The other aspect of the game that I liked was the money. It was really heavy. It felt like good quality coin. And once I got into the the campaign, I liked it. Though near the end, I was like, oh, how many more games? Because I think we played a game a day, almost. Um, some days didn't have as much, so I kind of felt like it. we should have taken a break and then come back a little bit. But I know... Chris wanted to do this review on it. Yeah, so the, the sufferings of being a, a, a reviewer's spouse. Yes. Yeah, so this isn't like when I, obviously Katie did not play Pandemic Legacy. When we played through that, that was, with the group I did with that, that was something that we did once a week. Now, I mean, we played several games in a row when we did that. And this one does take longer. If you look on the box, I think it lists 60 minutes as the playtime. This game's length varies with player count. I would generally tend to assume that unless you were playing a pretty low player count, that 60 minutes is, as with all game lengths, complete hogwash. It's not a long game by any stretch, but you know if you sit down with, with four to six players, you're probably not getting the same done in an hour. Every individual turn generally goes pretty quickly, but you know you take a, a few of them over the, the course of the game, so it adds up. And so I don't forget, since Katie mentioned components, it does have metal coins. It does have uh, wooden bits for all of the other resources, and they are all little custom sculpts. So you have pumpkins and grain and iron, and clay, and coal. wood, and coal. Yep. 
Kitty mentioned writing on things. You name your persona. You name some of the cards you get. You get to name your charter. So I was red because I'm always red, and they're like the clay people. So, I, oh, I'm red and there's clay. So I very cleverly, I, I think, and creatively just called my charter Georgia, which you'll get if you've ever lived in Georgia. Well, yeah, that was another thing. We we wrote on the board, which, you know, is weird, too. But there not there uh, another side to the board? I didn't write on that side. Yes. So the board is double-sided. Both sides are identical. This is not, I mentioned Euphoria earlier. This isn't like Euphoria where it's full color on one side and then you know, CPO or black and white or whatever that was on the other side. It's two identical sides to the board. And you, if you are just playing through normally, you don't do anything with the other side of the board. That is there because if you want to play through Charterstone again, you know, instead of or in addition to playing your copy of the game after the campaign is over, then you can buy a recharge pack which has whatever the consumable components of the game are in a cheaper package, so you can go back that and then bring it with the... Like, I think, again, I I don't think it's a spoiler to say, you are not, for example, going to consume the metal coins. You know, there's nothing where you're going to light a forge and melt the coins down as part of the game. So, you know, doing the recharge pack lets you reuse the components that are reusable from Charterstone while giving you new copies of things like stickers, like sticker cards, which are obviously going to be consumed. Well, because the board is double-sided, that lets you flip it over and play a second campaign on the other side with the recharge pack, without the recharge pack having to include the cost of another board. So the recharge pack, does that have the same exact cards as the first campaign, or are they slightly different? It is the exact same cards as the first campaign. It is a it is a direct replacement for the things you would have used up. So you'll have sticker cards for buildings, sticker cards for rules, right? You I mean you'll again you'll see this right away during the first game. You immediately starts opening things up and having you put more rules and story bits as cards in the the book. And thing, even things that aren't stickers, you may be writing on. So that is, I presumably those were based. I mean, I have not. I mean, I, I don't have a copy of the recharge pack. This is discussing based on what the description is and having played through the campaign and knowing that yes, indeed, you know these these cards do get consumed. Mostly, you're talking about cards. When you open the game, you can see how big the index is, and you can see that it's full of cards, and we've already told, and you already know going in that anything that's a sticker card, you know, is something that is going to get consumed if you use it. And of course, they don't know your campaign is not going to be the same as my campaign, and so the exact things that you need to replace are not going to be the exact things that I need to replace, but the recharge pack has to have an extra copy of everything. You can also continue to play Charterstone after it's done. And we have not done that yet. The weird thing is, to some extent, I don't, I honestly don't care. 
when I am playing a legacy game, a big part of that experience is the changeable nature of the game. I mean, and even with a, like a true campaign game where you're not changing thing with legacy, you know, it's, you play through the campaign and that's kind of it. That's what I, I do that for. Me playing through Pandemic Legacy Season 1 was one of my favorite gaming experiences ever, and I care exactly zero that I will never play that game again. And if I never played our copy of Charterstone again, it would not matter to me at all. You know, I would not feel that that in any way detracted from it. Uh, you, You could continue on with Charterstone, but... There's no getting around the fact that it loses something in that you're not doing this expandability thing in the same way, right? The box does not come with an infinite number of new building cards for you to build and unlock and then build and unlock, right? That's just just not how it works. You know, whether or not you'd want to, I would say that without being spoilery, if you open your, your charter stone and you look on the back of the rule book, right, you are going to see a list of symbols and names for symbols that are not part of the rules at the start of the game. So, right, you know, just looking at the rule book without me having to spoil something for you, that there are going to be things that are added in. And, and I'm not going to tell you what exactly how those work, but I I think it is safe to say that you are going to see an unfolding level of complexity in the game as you go along, as these new things are brought in. You know, that's all then going to be there for your your 12th games. This would be a, a heavier weight game, or it would feel like a heavier weight game if all that stuff was just part of the game right from the beginning. I think it was very beneficial for our campaign that it was not all in there at the beginning because we, Katie and I actually played this with my family and they play games, but they're not like me and running through just a whole series of heavy euros and, and, and complicated stuff and, you know, used to playing games all the time, you know, every weekend they actually have viticulture, and I really enjoy it. So, so that was that was what helped me get them playing some of these things. But right, they were making a joke about like how how often what I would I normally play a game a dozen times. Right, they are more like let's say normal people, where you actually will play the same game repeatedly. Normal uh, people. <laughs> well, let's be honest. I think the 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 sort of new hotness gamer paradigm of looking at at scores of new games every year. And like I do, what are the top 10 games of this year? What are the top 10 games of next year? What are the top 10 games of last year? All this looking for the new thing, looking for the new experience, burning through games pretty quickly, always wanting to try the new thing. That's not how the majority of the population of the planet interacts with games. But maybe you are the normal one, and everybody else is abnormal. Well, I don't think that's possible, since 
kind of by definition, if there's if it's everyone else and then me, they're the normal ones. I'm fine with how I enjoy games. I'm fine being weird and de- or different or whatever label you want to, to put on it. So I think that helped out. It is a uh, complex thinking. Um, I never played games like the ones you played before I met you. So it it does take some time to you know start thinking in the complex way. I think I've gotten better over the years. One of the players we were with was would ask a lot of questions every turn, and it felt like that player didn't really think of what they were going to do until their turn came, and then we had to wait for them to think and and then decide. So it was good that it, it started out easier and then got more complex as the game went on. Yes, as the campaign went on. So this was, I, I guess, for me, the funny thing is, like, yeah, the main headline thing is that I played the same game 12 times in a row, and I enjoyed every one of them. And was not, like, just sitting there yearning to please play something different. Now that I say that out loud, that sounds like faint praise. And I, I don't mean it to be, because that is a serious thing. I enjoyed every game that I played of Charterstone, and as Katie can attest... You know, it was always like, let's get the next game going, people. Come on, come on, get make your decisions. Let's get everything going. I want to play another game. Yes, and the kids were like, we want to eat. <laughs> <laughs> that is misleading because one of the kids was mostly like, I want to play. And yes. Even a gamer is seven-year-old is yes. Not the going to the play. age on Charterstone is fourteen plus, and I mean he understood a little bit but not enough to play alone you know his own player so right it's the sort of thing where he understands enough to get the basics of how the mechanics work but not be able to assemble a series of moves into a strategic plan although he did enjoy the heck of it he he was he was sitting there like drawing illustrations of all the symbols on the back of the rule book Here's a drawing of a pumpkin token. Here's a let me write out the the stylized name Charterstone. He enjoyed that, and it's hard to it's hard to talk about the specifics about why you you liked or or didn't like it. I think that see, it's also hard to judge it like if it wasn't a legacy and if it was just a standalone. I I would actually kind of like to see what the sort of idealized Charterstone board would look like. Because this kind of gets into player counts, so let's let's talk about that. On the Charterstone board, there are six charters, and on the Charterstone box, it says one to six players. So would it just be one person playing with an automa? Yes, that sounds lonely. Well, there are people who experience board games, either primarily, solely, or occasionally as solo experiences. I believe, as I've commented on this before, is I play solo games, too. I call them video games. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I do hardly anything in the way of solo board gaming. I like to have the other people to do with it. And that's actually what Automa comes out of, of 
originally is Stonemeyer has done this in, in a few games now where there are people who actively want a solo option. And so that gets added in. Now, this is the first time uh, that I recall that Automa is something other than an aid for someone to play solo. Because the board has six charters on it. And the board has six charters on it no matter how many players there are. The only thing that changes based on the number of players is the length of the game because it adds more turns. The game gets tracked by this progress track and every time someone completes an objective, unlocks a crate, or builds a building, it advances the progress track. A certain number of advancement triggers the, the end of the game. So you have more turns to accommodate more players, so you get approximately the same number of actions, give or take. But when you add more players, it becomes more of a fight for space, right? The, the, the reputation track has a certain number of spots, and it has that many spots whether there's two players or six. The quota track has one spot where you can sell just a single resource for victory points. It's going to get eaten up really quickly in a six-player game. And so I think there's actually a question then of what the optimal number of players is. And one of the things that factors into this is that the more players you have, the more you're going to be building and unlocking. So to me, I would want to avoid doing Charterstone with less than four. I think that when you get less than four, the board is going to be too sparse. There's not going to be enough competition for spots on the quota and the reputation track. And I, at least, other people might not feel this way, but I think I would feel a bit dissatisfied about the quantity of content that might not get unlocked, right? Because the question is, how many actions do people take to unlock crates? That is the big thing that's going to drive that. And if there's fewer people, that happens less often. And so that is why the Automa becomes something different in this than just a solo aid. Because if you play with the Automa, it is because that is designed to simulate another human player, the Automa actually can unlock crates. It doesn't have the same satisfaction of, of, a, of an individual player being like, ooh, I want to see what I got, but it at least continues that progression. But we played with four. I think that may have been a pretty good player count. We didn't feel like it was necessary. We, we had, we played some games with the Automa with one or with two Automa players. It actually recommends if you're using Automa that you use at least two. And if I was playing a two player game or if I was playing a three player game, I would want to play with Automas to push the player count up effectively. But with four, I didn't feel the need for that. It's, it's obviously less satisfying to play with four real players than an Automa than it is to play with five, or maybe that's not obvious, but it is to me anyway that, that that is less satisfying. So I would be fine 
playing it at each of those player counts. There's arguments to be made that four is the optimum because there's always that issue when you go up to five or six players that no matter how fast the turns are, you're still waiting for those turns to come around. It's still pretty loose for some of the spot stuff with four players, like the reputation track. It awards points for first place, second place, third place, and there's four players. And, you know, if you can, you can have a friendly tie for third place. So that's not exactly fierce competition there for who's going to get those points. And there's still tons of space, relatively speaking, on the, the quota track with the cloud port. So if you're okay with the length of game that's going to be added on, it may be that the optimum way to do Charterstone is actually with six life. So Charterstone... There is a story, and there are story twists, but the story is not as integral to the experience in Charterstone as it is in some other legacy games. Yes. Now, now Chris likes stories with his games, or sometimes he likes the games for their stories. I, on the other hand, it doesn't really matter to me. <laughs> I know, I cannot get her to play Mansions of Madness. I know. I know. So this had a tolerable amount. If you don't like the story part of games, I don't know if I'm weird or what, but it has a tolerable amount, so it's a good game. If you like work replacement, it's, it's good. I often felt like the story is really just a way to shoehorn in whatever the mechanical things that are going on in the game, mm. uh, and really the, the legacy aspect is about evolving mechanisms and the way that the evolving board changes how your games play over time. You think that's fair? Yeah. So, I at least give a hearty thumbs up to Charterstone. I mean, I still really like Viticulture, so I don't think I can say that Charterstone's my favorite Stonemeyer game. They just don't make bad games. Stonemeyer does not. Although I don't think you like Scythe, right, Katie? Uh, I don't remember that one. <laughs> <laughs> I know Viticulture. I like Viticulture. Yes. I like Lords of Waterdeep. That is not a Stonemeyer game. That's Wizard. But Day. it's a work replacement game. Yes, we both like work replacement. Oh, who did the Brewcrafters? That's another work replacement game. Brewcrafters is dice eat me games. Well, we could we could spend a while listing all of the work replacement games that I own. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Then, then we could have an entire episode listing all the deck building games I own. So you know. <laughs> so I give a thumbs up to Charterstone. Uh, it it's got fun mechanics. I think that the legacy nature kept changing things up so that I always wanted to see what was going to happen next uh, and see what we were going to play next. The legacy thing, I think, is also important in that one downside, I would say, there were definitely some times when, because of combinations of things that came up, I kind of felt like, well, this would not work if this was a static game where this was always the situation, because this would just be like the broken combo that would 
made people throw things at you. You know, it was something you could just do in every single game of it, but that's less of an issue when everything's kind of transient. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, well, like, I got... There was a stretch there where I had a... I, I had some things going on that were kind of were accelerating my leads in some of the games, and I did, in fact, win the campaign. And I finished the campaign. Yay! Oh. <laughs> That's... That was not... It's like a marathon. I, I finished. Yay! Well, no, that... No, it is... A, I, uh... It's okay. It's okay. I'm used to playing games with you, and I'm used to you always winning. Always win. All we have to do is break out Lost Cities to demonstrate that. Yes. But, but no, there's there's a quote, I don't remember the precise quote, so I'm going to paraphrase from, from Reiner Knizia about, and it's something like, it is important that you're trying to win the game, but but it's it's the trying that's important, not the winning, right? So if one cannot enjoy games when you don't win them, you know, there aren't a lot of people that are going to have fun on that because if you're playing games with, with three, four, five people, that means you're probably not winning the game because... If there's five of you, I'm pretty sure that only amounts to 20% of you who can win any given game. Well, I think I won, like, three games, but you won the campaign. Yes. So, I mean, you do have 12 shots to win at least one game. (laughs) Yes, yes. No, I, I did not win all 12 games in the campaign. There is some catch-up mechanism. Uh, it's Fairly mild, though. If you played Seafall, that had some pretty strident catch-up <laughs> every single game, and this is is not that. Yeah, it wasn't like getting the bullet on Mario Kart. No, which is which is good. What's good in Mario Kart may not be good in a board game. I don't know that I'd want to play a board game where it was possible for someone to pick up one item near the end of the last game of the campaign and then just knock me out of contention in one shot. I, I don't know if I'd be enthused about that. I, let me try that again. I would not be enthused about that. I, I would be highly unenthused about that. So, I guess four thumbs up from the Stevensons? Yep. Over here? Or yes. Or the ones on this podcast? Yes. <laughs> so that came out in December, so it's available now from Stonewire Games. And so... If you want me to be able to get Katie to come on the show again, you know, it would be great if you could write in or do comments or something about how awesome she is and, and so she can feel adored even more and, and then we can get her on the show again. All right? But until then, you have been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can hit us at the usual social media haunts. We are at Strange Assembly on Twitter and Facebook.com slash Strange Assembly. You can subscribe to the podcast on our website and the Apple Podcasts app or in the Google Play Music Store. 
I also always like to hear from you, not just about how awesome my wife is, but just generally. So you can reach me directly. I'm Chris at strangeassembly.com. But until then, for Katie Stevenson, I'm Chris Stevenson, and you've been listening to Strange Assembly. Never stop 